Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining the BMO Energy Conference today. Like all of you, we prefer to meet in person, but we're also fully committed to delivering the best possible virtual experience. This is the keynote session, and today we're pleased to welcome Artem Abramoff, Head of Shale Research at Rystead Energy. Artem is responsible for analysis of oil well production profiles, completion techniques, and economic indicators at Rystead, a firm I think many of you know well. Artem will be giving us a global perspective on the outlook for oil and gas. And with that, over to you, Artem. Yes, thank you, Randy, and uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, so what uh, what we uh, what I wanted to do today, I uh, wanted to share with you some of our latest thoughts on the energy market. Uh, so we'll cover um, broadly, uh, first of all, the oil market fundamentals, how they have been developing in the recent weeks, and then uh, we'll move to some implications for the gas and LNG markets. Of course, it was a very challenging market environment, uh, but in our view, there are some signs of fundamental market recovery, uh, even though the timing of the next up cycle for many markets remains quite absorbent. Yeah, so starting from the demand side of the story, we were in this unprecedented uh, environment uh, with extreme global liquid demand destruction caused by COVID-19, various lockdowns, uh, collapse in jet fuel consumption, uh, and also the road traffic. Positive uh, side to the story is that we are likely uh, beyond the bottom. Uh, we saw the record destruction of around 30 million barrels a day in the global product consumption in April uh, 2020. And already in May and June, we started seeing the positive tendency. Uh, road traffic is recovering uh, in all regions, starting from Asia, uh, then going to Europe and also North America. Uh, it's probably only Brazil and some other South American countries which are lagging a little bit behind. However, we shouldn't really expect immediate recovery uh, all the way back to pre-COVID-19 consumption level. Some segments, like the jet fuel consumption, uh, they will exhibit some structural shifts, uh, behavioral change, uh, and it might take two, three years, even without second wave of COVID-19 spread, before we return uh, to the pre-COVID-19 uh, consumption. On the supply side of the story, uh, many positive things happened in the last three months. Uh, OPEC Plus agreement uh, uh, probably surprised the market uh, not with the existence of the agreement itself, but with the degree of compliance. Uh, so back in March, uh, OPEC Plus members, uh, they were producing around 42.9 million barrels a day of crude oil production, which was subject to cut. Total oil output, including condensate, was much higher, but condensate in OPEC um, uh, countries, also in Russia and Oman, uh, is kind of exempt uh, from these production cuts. Uh, and uh, as of now, we, uh, we saw nearly full compliance uh, with some deeper cuts from some members, but also some countries lagging a little bit behind. Right now, we anticipate that in June, we'll actually be very close to the uh, target, uh, target production, uh, which definitely helps to balance the market. Uh, there are some, I would say, outperformers, some countries which comply very well. Uh, so uh, it, it applies to Saudi Arabia. It, it also applies to Russia. Uh, initially, there were some concerns that Russia wouldn't be able to cut uh, production as quickly 
from technical perspective, but in fact, already in May, they produced uh, the volumes very close to the target uh, production of around 8.5 million uh, barrels a day. Uh, two other OPEC plus members, uh, which are worth highlighting, is definitely UAE and Kuwait. Uh, but on the other uh, hand of the story, uh, we have some other uh, OPEC members which struggled to reduce production in line with the new targets. Uh, so primarily, we are talking about Iraq, Nigeria, and also Kazakhstan, uh, which didn't really deliver fully on the, their target production in May. And uh, we have serious concerns about their ability to actually cut production uh, in line with the existing agreement uh, in quarter three, quarter four this year. So from a certain point of view, uh, we had a positive outcome for this OPEC plus agreement so far. Uh, but there are some limits um, uh, among uh, uh, the members which comply very well. And uh, the existence of the future deal is a little bit conditional on um, the compliance among other uh, members which haven't complied so far. On the other side um, of, of the ocean, Atlantic Ocean, we also had quite significant contribution to the production performance. Uh, a lot of these cuts, they were driven by economic rationale. For example, Canada contributed quite a lot already in April before a lot of oil sands production had come, uh, coming offline. In the US specifically, uh, what we generally observe during this down cycle is much faster reaction of the industry compared to what we observed, for example, in 2015 and 16. Uh, oil focused in peace, they cut their initial capital guidance by roughly 50%. That's full year guidance for 2020. And the uh, CAPEX uh, was really front-loaded this year. Uh, so in fact, this 50% decline implies complete collapse in the drilling completion activity from the peak activity level where we were in quarter one uh, to the bottom, which will probably reach in the next few weeks. On the rig activity side, horizontal oil drilling has already declined by 70% uh, from the activity level where we were in the middle of March. Gas-focused drilling remains in a steady state, uh, steady decline, uh, which started around June 2019. And by now, uh, activity in Appalachian Basin and Hainesville combined has declined by around 60%. And now there were, there are very important activity metric uh, which we should monitor is the fracking activity. Uh, because uh, ultimately, it is really fracking activity in the U.S. land which drives production potential in the next two to three months. And this is an activity metric which collapsed even faster. If you look at the total number of started frac operations in the US, um, activity went down by 75% in the last three months. We probably reached the bottom in May and will remain at this bottom in June. Now there is, there is a little bit of positive sentiment. We might see a small recovery in fracking activity in July and August, but this recovery will be primarily driven by a handful of large, well-established independents uh, with access to the core acreage and strong balance sheets. The implication for the US oil production was quite dramatic. Then uh, we can actually see how our view on the US oil production evolved over time. Our latest base case is presented by the bold green line. The US oil production declined by more than 2 million barrels a day, and this excludes natural gas liquids uh, by June 2020. And uh, collapse in fracking uh, was one driver, but there is a cycle time in the U.S. onshore. So the decline, the natural decline due to the low fracking was supposed to start only in June, in some cases in July. 
the real most significant contribution actually came from uh, production curtailments from some already producing vows, either complete shut-ins or the least economic marginal vows, or partial shut-ins, depressed flows on more modern vows. Some operators, they also delayed significant number of wells, which, have, which were already fracked. So they didn't really put them on production, and they also classify uh, these type of activity as curtailments. In terms of the outlook, uh, it is very likely that the U.S. oil reached the bottom in June 2020. Now, significant amount of these curtailments is actually being reactivated. And from July, we anticipate that reactivation of curtailments will be sufficient to offset natural decline caused by low fracking. It is very likely that the U.S. oil will bounce back to the level of around 11 million barrels a day, but uh, further growth depends on increased drilling and completion activity. In our base case view, we anticipate gradual improvement in WTI oil prices towards mid-40s by the end of the next year. This type of increase will be sufficient uh, to, to get to some uh, somewhat increased capex, again, limited to a handful of large producers which are able to increase this capex organically. However, given that the base production in the US will become significantly more mature, next year we'll need to complete 30 to 40% fewer wells to keep production flat compared to what we needed to complete in 2020. Even small increase in capex will be sufficient to restore positive tendency. The U.S. oil production will likely start growing again, delivering roughly 500,000 barrels a day from December 2020 to December 2021. So overall, uh, the markets uh, are moving towards a balanced situation uh, quite rapidly. Uh, supply reaction was a little bit faster uh, than what many people expected back in uh, April, which resulted in this positive tendency in the oil prices. When we compare our outlook from early March to the outlook on the global oil production, which we have now, we, we removed more than 15 million barrels a day from the production in June, which eliminated uh, stock builds in many regions globally, even though in some regions, specifically in the US, uh, we still anticipate some uh, stock builds in the next few weeks. When it comes to the outlook for the global stocks, uh, we anticipate that we'll gradually uh, we'll start seeing the draws in the storage uh, from quarter three, but it will take uh, almost five quarters to eliminate this abnormal stock build, unprecedented stock build, which we saw in March and April. In April, we're basically building stocks, global stocks, at the rate of 16 to 17 million barrels a day. And in order to return to the normal storage level, we need to see uh, approximately six to seven months with uh, the depletion of around two to three million barrels a day. When it comes to the long-term perspectives for the oil market and the main implications from uh, the, uh, the collapse of the previous OPEC agreement and COVID-19, we can briefly split uh, all uh, supply in the world into three different uh, supply sources. First of all, the rest of the world, everything excluding OPEC production and uh, light oil. Uh, the main implication is that we will likely see steeper decline rates on some mature fields and also delayed offshore projects. It will result in around 2 to 3 million barrels a day of lost production in mid-20s. In offshore, we have a pretty long cycle time of 6-7 years. So the projects which are being delayed now the, uh, this uh, uh, contribution will only become visible on the supply side in mid-20s. Uh, OPEC, um, uh, they will likely see increased market share 
because in mid-20s, they will need to contribute with all available spare capacity in order to balance upcoming supply deficits. The most significant implication is, of course, for the LITO. We don't think that LITO story is over. There will be another upcycle, which requires somewhat stronger oil prices. But this, this growth, which we were supposed to get from LITO production, is basically delayed by approximately two years. Our base case view on the oil prices suggests gradual improvement uh, in all uh, price benchmarks, uh, and especially as we move towards 2022-2023, we actually see the need for much stronger oil prices, potentially with Brent going to into 60s again for a short period of time. From the long-term perspective, we think that Brent of around $60-$65 per barrel is the price level. Uh, which results in balanced markets, at least before global liquid consumption peaks, which will probably happen in late 20s or early 30s. Uh, but in reality, we'll see continuous strong volatility in the oil markets uh, because with the introduction of LITO to the markets, typical cycle time increased. Uh, the, more, uh, the time from the moment when industry receives price signal the moment when we get a lot of new oil coming to the market is much shorter today than it was seven, eight years ago. So this was a quick summary of the oil situation in the oil markets and um, uh, the whole collapse um, of oil prices also resulted in quite significant implications for the gas uh, and uh, LNG, even though some of these trends were independent of each other. Uh, but let us now look uh, what is actually happening uh, on the gas side of the story. Yeah, so uh, I guess many people notice that uh, all main global uh, gas price benchmarks, they remain pretty much depressed. Uh, main European price benchmarks, uh, benchmark uh, has been trading below Henry Hub more or less for, for the first time the, in the history. So clearly it eliminated any economic ex incentives for LNG exports uh, from the US to Europe, but also to Asia, uh, because even though Asian prices improved a little bit few few days ago, uh, the gap between Asian prices and Henry Hub uh, is still very narrow. Uh, if you look at how LNG market evolved so far in 2020, or then we can see that um, uh, overall imports, global imports of LNG uh, started declining uh, in uh, January, February. Initially, it was really the reaction coming from China, and overall kind of uh, lockdown. Uh, European markets uh, remained relatively stable uh, because European buyers tried to leverage on uh, very attractive LNG prices. So what really happened in European markets is that a lot of pipeline uh, imports from coming from Russia, they were basically replaced by LNG. But we are still seeing record time gas storage level in Europe for this time of the year. So in the next few months, uh, there are no, not so many reasons to actually expect significant improvement uh, in, in Europe. Uh, on the positive side, it should be noted that Chinese uh, economy started recovering. So already in April and March, we started seeing sequential increases in LNG imports, and this trend will likely persist as we move into the second half of the year. So when it comes to the longer-term uh, impact on associated gas production, uh, you know, we are, we are seeing a lot of shut-ins in the U.S. and also many other regions globally, uh, not only in the OPEC-plus members, but many other countries. Uh, some of these shut-ins are driven by economic reasons. Uh, in some cases, they're viewed as voluntary commitments. 
But it's, it already becomes quite clear that the impact of oil production curtailments and overall our uh, downturn uh, is also quite dramatic on the associated gas production. Not only this year, when we are losing around 9 to 10 BCF a day of global associated gas production on a full year basis. In short term, loss is actually more significant. Right now, associated gas is around 20 BCF a day lower than the full potential. But also in the longer term, a lot of volumes, associated gas volumes are being delayed. So it's around uh, three to four BCF a day uh, of associated gas lost all the way into the late 20s, uh, which from a certain point of view might trigger uh, some up cycles in the gas markets because some gas basins in different parts of the world, including the US again and uh, uh, Monty play in Canada, they will probably need to contribute and fill this gap when global LNG markets recover. So in the US specifically, there is a fundamental trend. Uh, we are about to lose 10 BCF a day of uh, dry gas production in the US onshore by the end of the year. Uh, as of today, production already declined by roughly 6 to 6.5 BCF a day. But a lot of these declines were coming uh, from uh, temporary curtailments in uh, oil basins. Some of these curtailments, as I mentioned, they're coming back already now. So uh, in some pipeline flows, we even see the increases in associated gas output in selected regions. But uh, as we move towards the end of the year, uh, associated gas probably will contribute with 65 to 70% to the total gas production decline in the country. Uh, when it comes to the gas basins, Appalachian and Hainesville, uh, production has been exceptionally resilient so far, but it was in quarter one, for example, it was still supported by very strong fracking in the second half of 2019. As we move towards the end of the year, um, depressed gas prices, uh, they resulted in significant degradation uh, in the capital guidance of majority of gas producers. A lot of larger players, they will be able to maintain flat production. But we also see some smaller companies which stopped activity completely. And as we move towards the second half of the year, they will see declining, naturally declining output. And combined, this will drive some sequential declines in basin context. So again, from longer-term perspective, uh, we remain very positive about LNG story uh, for many different regions, but also there is quite some room for the U.S. new U.S. LNG projects. Uh, the market will likely remain quite uh, loose uh, through mid-20s. Uh, all projects which have already been uh, sanctioned and are currently in under development phase, uh, if we add contribution from all these volumes, uh, we, uh, we are able to satisfy global LNG demand easily uh, through 2022 uh, But as we move towards the second half of 20s, we still see the need, we, we see significant growth and regasification capacity globally, driven primarily by China and India. Uh, there are some projects which are about to be sanctioned, some large projects in Qatar. Uh, and for American producers, it might be quite difficult to compete with Qatar projects, especially if uh, the end market is in Asia. But uh, there is still some need for up to 150 million tons of new sanctioning by late 20s. And a lot of these volumes, they will have to come from the North America. Yeah, so what does all this mean for the global price benchmarks? So we anticipate um, a gradual improvement in uh, Asian and European gas prices as we move towards mid-20s. Probably we will never see uh, the price level from 2010, 2014 ever again. 
uh, this has been a, a message which we communicated for quite many years that with introduction of the US LNG in the market, global price benchmarks, they will gradually converge uh, to uh, a Henry Hub net of transportation costs to Asia. Henry Hub prices, uh, they will uh, remain quite depressed as well, but uh, we are calling for another upcycle in the gas prices. We think that the Cantango in Henry Hub prices is fully justified, uh, but it is unlikely that we'll ever see Henry Hub going above three dollars per BTU for a prolonged period of time. In all our models, whenever we plug Henry Hub prices above three dollars per BTU, we end up with very oversupplied uh, domestic North American markets. Uh, with three to five quarter horizon, regardless of what is happening uh, on that social gas side. So ultimately, 2.5 to three dollar BTU is a reasonable range for Henry Hub prices. This is the minimum range where Appalachian and Hensley producers can maintain profitable activity and balance their capex with cash flow operations in medium term. Uh, this is probably everything I wanted to share with you in this introduction uh, presentation. So I would now like to pass it back uh, to Randy. Uh, thanks, Artem. So with that, uh, we can kick it off to um, uh, some of the questions. And you know, Artem, you know, one of the questions I've got is when you know when you look at sort of the inventory balances that we're seeing, um, mm -hmm. you know, we're not seeing as much of a build in the U.S. as mm -hmm you would expect given some of these, you know, dire demand outlooks. I mean, we're, we're up about 135 million barrels, I think, uh, with the latest week. And the U.S. typically accounts for about 40, 45% of total inventory. Mm -hmm. So, you know, how are you guys thinking about where that disconnect lies? I mean, part of it's floating storage, obviously, but what else might be accounting for that disconnect? Yeah, so first of all, uh, I would just say that uh, as of now, global, uh, oil market is almost balanced already. So, uh, you know, uh, there are some less transparent regions and uh, there are also some interesting dynamics with the floating storage. But from the perspective of total oil production and total current consumption, we, ha we have almost reached the balance. In the US specifically, uh, we still think that we'll see in the next few weeks, we'll see, more, uh, we'll see uh, modest storage builds. And uh, some production is coming back. Uh, so when, when we talk to our midstream clients, for example, they already seen increased flows uh, in some governance systems. So uh, this reactivation of curtailments, which I was talking about, is probably happening a little bit faster than companies projected three, four weeks ago, because initially they really planned to keep most of the volumes offline through uh, the end of June. But uh, some larger producers, they're already bringing back uh, the volumes uh, more or less in line with uh, increase in the refinery inputs. So the market is pretty balanced, uh, but uh, some stock builds should be still anticipated. Uh, the remaining storage builds, uh, which we think are still happening now, uh, all are all attributable to the floating storage. Uh, a lot of things which the US, uh, if you, for example, follow EIA's uh, weekly reports, uh, they still report pretty high export, crude export levels. But a lot of these exports since the beginning of April, they were exports only on paper. Tankers were not really moving uh, anywhere. Uh, essentially uh, should have been classified as the increase in floating storage. Uh, now the Cantango in uh, all, uh, uh, basically both brands and WTI prices has almost disappeared. So uh, the storage is no longer as attractive as it was uh, two, three months ago. 
uh, which is another indication that the market is basically almost in balance and we will start uh, actually drawing lower stocks uh, maybe already from July. So, you know, you've got a, uh, I guess, a prediction on a recovery in uh, U.S. shale production underlying your U.S. oil outlook there. Um, so what uh, break-even oil price are your models assuming for U.S. shale in terms of that recovery? And can you maybe highlight the difference between what you're thinking about in terms of the break-even for the plays versus corporate break-even? And what I mean by that, Artem, is you know, the corporation having enough cash flow to actually achieve those uh, types of reinvestment levels? Yeah, so uh, the most important uh, break-even for the U.S. shale is the so-called uh, half-cycle break-even. Uh, essentially, this is an oil price which operators need uh, to achieve a certain level of return on new projects, new drill and completion works, uh, as long as you take into account all overhead costs like GNA and uh, you know, all the costs which will continue going forward. And these break-even price uh, in 2018, 2019, most producers, they needed uh, oil prices, WTI prices, somewhere in 35 to $45 per barrel range. This is an absolute minimum to kind of continue with the new uh, drilling and completion. Now, these break-evens are actually moving down very quickly because we're seeing massive cost deflation. Uh, a lot of service prices, they're down by 20 to 30% since the beginning of oil price crash. Of course, it doesn't make too much sense to talk about uh, spot prices when no new work is happening. But even when markets recover a little bit, uh, we anticipate that service prices will stabilize at the level below compared to where they were prior to the oil price crash. So from EP perspective, uh, they frequently treat it as structural cost improvements. But of course, service companies would disagree. Uh, they think it's more cyclical and uh, they cannot operate with zero margins uh, eternally. Uh, and then, uh, uh, there is also massive high grading. Operators are focusing on the sweet spots, reallocating the activities. So as we move into 2021, uh, whatever was commercial in $50 environments will probably become quite commercial in $40 environments. Uh, it's very similar to what we observed during the, the previous down cycle. And then from corporate break-even perspective, this is really a kind of a very flexible and moving component because co your corporate break-even what you need to balance your capex with operational cash flow really depends on how much you are willing to spend. Because if you don't spend, uh, don't invest into any new uh, drill and completion projects, your production will decline, but your corporate break-even will roughly correspond to your cash costs on already producing wells, which is very low. But if you want to continue growing uh, in a very aggressive way, then of course your corporate break-even is much higher. Uh, but still, uh, you know, the, the cash cost, uh, 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 cost break-even point for the U.S. Lato is actually quite low. So when the wells are already producing, the U.S. onshore is not that different uh, from many other regions globally. Uh, a lot of operators, they don't need prices uh, uh, higher than $15, $20 per barrel WTI to cover their cash costs. But this is not very attractive investment opportunity when you are in such uh, price environments. And uh, just the last comment uh, uh, in terms of the basin variability, um, there are some sweet spots in Bakken, in Eagle Fort, uh, in DJ Basin, basically in all major onshore basins. But Permian Basin is quite unique from the perspective that it offers the largest number of very attractive opportunities with low break-evens, uh, which is why it became the dominant driver of uh, nationwide uh, production growth in 2018 and 19. 
I know your I know your oil price forecast is uh, above this, above the strip certainly. Um, but I mean, listening to what you're suggesting, you know, do you believe then that the U.S. shale producers would actually start picking up activity levels based on where the strip is today in the in that sort of high 30s? Uh, it will be the next up cycle will be different from the previous growth phase uh, because the business model, especially for larger uh, producers, uh, uh, changed quite dramatically. It happened already last year, so we really went from multi-year period of systematic overspend, aggressive activity and production expansion into the new phase with more disciplined and balanced capital programs. So there is a focus on free cash flow generation. There is a focus on uh, delivering cash returns uh, to equity investors. And there is also a focus uh, on reducing the leverage ratios in some cases, because the industry is known for quite a uh, high level of indebtedness. So uh, in the next up cycle, we think that um, a majority of well-established large producers, companies, for example, like Pioneer, UG or Parsley, and also super majors, they will really drive the next phase of growth because uh, to some extent, they are the only ones uh, which will be, uh, who will be able to increase CapEx organically as soon as WTI goes even to low 40s. Uh, so we are not very far actually from this price level. But a lot of smaller operators, especially private equity-backed companies, uh, which accounted for a very large share of growth in 2018 and 19. A lot of these firms, energy-focused firms, they will not necessarily come back as quickly as they did in the past. There is also a structural shift. A lot of energy PE firms, they are reallocating their investments towards alternative energy sources, uh, basically renewables. And in order to return to the oil and gas, they will probably require higher premium. If they made investment decisions in $50 environment in the past, some of them will now require $60 per barrel, uh, which will delay the growth from uh, new private equity firms. You know, I was thinking about your uh, your oil price forecast, which I think many companies and investors would love to see, particularly in 2022, when you've got uh, the Brent price getting up as high as $70. Is that partly a function of your expectation that the companies don't believe that, and so they're not investing in future projects, and so we're going to see more restrained growth? And that's really kind of what underlies that? Just because it would seem relatively inconsistent. I mean, if we did have those sorts of price levels, we would expect, a, I would say, a lot higher levels of reinvestment and therefore higher production, which becomes a bit self-defeating. Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the way the decision-making process normally works in the oil industry, you cannot just invest in the project, uh, which has a break-even price of $70 per barrel, because someone thinks the prices will be at $70 per barrel three years down the road. Uh, it's it's a too risky decision, especially for you know some of the more capital intensive projects. Uh, and overall tendency, uh, you know, when light oil becomes significant player in the markets, what we saw in other supply sources was that uh, there was significant high grading in the decision making process. So, for example, back in 2012, a lot of offshore projects they were sanctioned even if they had breaking prices in 80s, 80 to 90 dollars per barrel. Uh, in 2017 and 18, only the best offshore projects were sanctioned uh, because everyone understands that uh, you know there is a new player in the market, which will result in continuous uh, volatility, and you can't really sanction your offshore project just at the break-even price level, which is just 10, maybe 15 dollars per barrel below the strip. It has to be you know a really attractive investment opportunity uh, given the long cycle time, and the same is true for U.S. onshore. 
majority of the companies, they first of all think in terms of the current prices. Current price always drives the decision. So you look at the strip, and uh, if you don't see, uh, you know, sixty dollars per barrel next year, uh, you'll be quite uh, cautious in, uh, you know, acceler- uh, uh, to accelerate uh, your activity. Your um, so in your your longer term gas price outlook, uh, you know, you looks like you're forecasting a longer term Asian LNG price around the dollar level. Hmm. Um, do you see that as actually being high enough to justify? Um, some of those U.S. LNG plants, or you know, Royal Dutch's LNG Canada project on the on the west coast of Canada. Yes, I think uh, the world needs uh, quite many new LNG projects, especially from North America. So North America will act almost as a, a kind of uh, a balancing player, swing player in this equation. Uh, but the business model of LNG producers in North America will have to change. Because when uh, U.S. LNG export story started several years ago, what we saw initially is that there were no long-term agreements as such, and uh, U.S. LNG was just flowing into the markets with the highest spot prices, net of transportation costs. Now, uh, there is a need to compete with very uh, you know, uh, competitive uh, Qatar projects, for example. And uh, what we're seeing already now is that American uh, LNG companies they're trying to secure some long-term agreements, uh, find uh, basically some end buyers uh, before they make final investment decisions. And of course, we still have a very long pipeline of proposed projects uh, in both uh, US and some other countries in North America. Uh, a lot of projects, they will never materialize, but uh, some best projects, uh, they will of course uh, you know, be sanctioned and they will be needed, especially in the second half of uh, 20s. So it uh, it looks like our polling results are in. So let's have a, have a look at the uh, the first question, uh, which was around global oil demand returning back to the sort of 2019 levels, and uh, what our audience thought there. So yeah, so the question was how many months till we get back to that sort of 2019, and it looks like uh, a majority uh, certainly thinks it's going to be uh, quite a while. So you know, Artem, do you think about? Your price outlook. I mean, how uh, you guys are obviously maybe perhaps thinking about a quicker recovery in global oil demand. Hmm. No, I think uh, we 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 also don't see uh, demand returning uh, to you know pre-COVID nineteen levels before uh, to ta- late two thousand twenty two two thousand twenty three. It's more or less uh, you know in the same twenty four plus uh, months range. Uh, and um, uh, you know one thing to keep in mind: there is a risk or the second wave of COVID-19 uh, in global context. And of course, if this uh, risk materializes, uh, then we'll see another period with massive demand destruction. Uh, but if this doesn't happen, and uh, you know, then we will definitely be back uh, to normal uh, in um, uh, 22, 2023. What I really liked uh, in the answers uh, of the audience is that there are very few people uh, which believe that we would never recover to pre- <laughs> pre-COVID levels. Um, because there are also some alternative opinions on this topic, and uh, we are hearing it from some of our clients, especially exposed to renewables. Some people anticipate that there will be massive structural shifts, uh, behavioral shifts, not only in their uh, jet fuel consumption, but also in other segments, and uh, you know some investments into renewable uh, renewables and also alternative technologies. They will be fast tracked now, but um, I think it's easier. Uh, to think this way when you, for example, live 
uh, in Europe or the US, but in many other regions, uh, the picture there looks quite different. And uh, we still think that China and India and some other Asian countries, they will drive uh, overall liquid demand recovery in, also in long term. So our, our second question is a related question, uh, which was really how long it's going to take to work off the global oil and product inventories. And so, again, the, uh, the answers sort of mirror the same questions. And I guess that's reasonably consistent, again, with the view you just expressed as well, Artem. No, I, I guess this is 58% uh, is actually never, because I thought the covers were very similar. And I, I thought it was uh, six plus months. That majority <laughs> thinks that we will never work. Uh, through the inventors, right? Was it right? Uh, um, I think it was uh, six. I think it was the six months. But um, okay, okay. Again. But let's move yeah. on to the third question because I know we're I know we're getting close to the end of the presentation here, which was around the OPEC Plus ag uh, agreement that we have in place, and see what our audience uh, thought there. Again, the question there was how long that agreement basically is going to last. And uh, again, it looks like the majority here anticipates that we do get good compliance. And so perhaps uh, the Saudis and Russians mm -hmm. will tolerate uh, Iraq and Kazakhstan in terms of their uh, inability to achieve full target levels. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts around that? No, I also think there are very high chances that uh, OPEC Plus in general, they will stay committed to the agreement, at least in the short term. Because uh, you know some key members like Russia and Saudi, uh, they still see the need from the government of budget perspective. They they see the need in uh, continuous uh, price recovery, uh, and the, the, if they bring back all the volumes now, we'll just see another uh, complete collapse uh, in the prices. It's a it's a little bit uh, you know more the discussion about the prospects of this agreement for 2021 2022, because what might happen in theory if oil prices improve too much we might trigger uh, a new big up cycle in the u.s light oil and uh, some opec plus members they will not necessarily tolerate another uh, another phase of dramatic loss in the market share maybe just our last uh, last question here which was really around u.s production whether it shrinks or grows and we're, we're a split 50 50 here so this is on 21, and I think your forecasts was that U.S. crude production would be up about 500,000 barrels a day in 21, and it looks like yeah. the audience is uh, equally split there. Yes, uh, I think uh, the, the, this is uh, you know exactly the type of question where we normally see uh, you know uh, quite uh, uh, extreme views. Either you uh, you know a strong believer in the continuous U.S. light oil story, or you uh, think that this industry would ultimately have to collapse. And uh, it really depends on uh, how much, uh, what kind of weight you put on all arguments about capital availability. In some cases, this change in the business model uh, and also some subsurface risks. In our view, subsurface risks, uh, this is something um, that was a little bit exaggerated. So all these parent-child frack interference issues, the industry knows how to cope with these issues very well and they are aware you know, of all these things. But capital availability, it can always surprise a little bit. Uh, but uh, I guess in my presentation, the main point was actually that even with small, quite organic increase in capex, we might restore the positive tendency because the US oil production will become very mature by the end of the year, which is also quite unique feature of light oil reservoirs. Production falls very quickly in the first few months, 
But then it's not that different from conventional wealth after the first 12, 18 months, and it declines you know, with very shallow decline rates. Um, just another question from the audience here. Um, you know, we're certainly seeing, with at least with the super majors, they're devoting more and more capital to non-oil investments, to you know, more environmentally friendly uh, investment initiatives. Do you see that as a, a growing trend more broadly, that more and more oil and gas companies are going to be pivoting their investment mm. portfolios towards uh, renewable resources? I think super majors and also some of the largest independents like Equinor or Repsol, uh, they are in unique position that, uh, you know, they're so large and they uh, have uh, their own in-house views on the macro environment, uh, also from long-term perspective. So they understand that global liquid demand will ultimately peak. Uh, gas will stay around for several decades, also in the renewable era. But uh, in order to stay in the business, because uh, they are so large, they need to start investing into some alternative energy sources already now, because the structural shift in the markets will happen. For smaller companies, um, it's a little bit more challenging because they don't have um, you know, uh, so much spare capital uh, basically available to invest into alternative energy sources. So for example, for light oil American companies, like pure shale players, uh, we haven't seen uh, this trend um, from the perspective of uh, operational activities, but there are also quite many things happening how they use these alternative energy sources uh, in their own to support their own gas development. For example, in the Permian Basin, uh, we saw quite many small solar projects uh, which were completed typically by private uh, suppliers in order to um, you know, generate power, for example, for some administrative buildings or for some enhanced or recovery projects. So in longer term, I think there will be general shifts and we will see that more and more oil-focused producers, uh, they will start considering uh, alternative industry segments. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation, together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of 
love or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobal0.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.